Amen. You may be seated. I had one other thought that came to mind. We might need a camera. If anybody has a nice digital camera that you can put on a tripod, uh, the one photographer's camera was broke. And my daughter was going to come from Grand Rapids, and she was going to bring hers for us. But uh, you need to be in prayer for uh, Grand Rapids. There was a police officer involved shooting. And they're going to release the footage this Friday. And so my son-in-law is a police officer there. And they are on high alert. They might not be able to come. Let's pray for that. Safety of our officers. A young businessman was opening a new branch office. And his friend wanted to uh, encourage that. And so his friend ordered a flower arrangement to be delivered to the new location on the day of the opening. But to their chagrin, when they got there, they found a large wreath that said, rest in peace. He was so angry, he immediately called the florist, and the florist apologized profusely, and the man was just not taking it. But finally, the florist said, hey, listen, you look at it this way. Somewhere there's a man that was buried beneath a wreath that says, good luck on your new location. I wanted to share that story because I was thinking about our series. Our series is simply called Jesus Is. I don't have the clicker. We're missing the clicker today. Click for me uh, there, Margaret, if you would. It's called Jesus Is, and we've talked through several of these things. Today we're going to talk about the deliverer who dies. Go ahead and go forward. Uh, But Jesus Is, keep going. He is the son who sleeps. We talked about that the first week. Uh, the son who sleeps. And then we talked about the rescuer who rests. We did that. Thank you. Um, is this actually the right one? It works. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. It's just not doing it. So I'm sorry. Oh, it's doing the sides. It's doing the sides. I know. Don't worry about it. You can just click the main screen. That's, that's no problem. Somehow it disappeared. If anybody has our uh, clicker, bring it back. We want that back. We, we use that every Sunday. Um, not that we need to, but some pastors are control freaks, and like to, I like to push my own buttons. I've been told I push people's buttons. I'm a button pusher. So Jesus is the son who sleeps and rescue who rests. And this whole series is based on the positions of Christ, his posture. And, and it's surprising, right? This whole story about the reef and the uh, good luck in your new location. Sometimes things don't go the way you think they're going to go. And uh, there's some disappointments and some discouragement. And when Jesus showed up, the Messiah finally arrived. People were expecting somebody who's going to overthrow the problems, the government that was suppressing them. And here comes a baby, a baby who's sleeping. That's not the posture you thought the Messiah would have, but he slept. He's in a boat that's about to sink. You would think that he would be totally on that. No, he's sleeping. Why? Because his father's in charge. His father's in control. He's able to rest during a storm. We learned last week about a shepherd who serves. Jesus taking off out of his garment and putting on this towel and kneeling to wash stinky feet. Not what you'd expect, but our Savior surprises us. And by the way, I have to share this. I had some points last week, and I'll tell you, I watched your faces. I will let love lead, three L's. I will harvest a humble heart, three H's. I will invest in an entrusted identity. And I saw you snickering. I saw you. But you don't read dictionaries and thesauruses like I do. The word entrust is a word. You're like, ooh, that starts with an E. Look it up. 
In trust is actually a form of entrusted with an E, but it is used, but rarely. It is archaic, but when you're trying to make those letters match up, I'll use the archaic form when I want to, all right? So it is a word, entrust. Again, I spent a day and a half finding an I word that matched up. I take it when I can get it. Go ahead and go forward. Today is the deliverer who dies, but we're talking about the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the deliverer who died for our sins. I want you to open up your Bibles. I encourage you to do that. We're not going to put the main reading on the screen today. If you don't have a Bible with you, use your phone. Go ahead and get to this. Uh, But actually start in Mark 14. Go there first. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles scattered throughout the auditorium today underneath the chairs, some uh, baskets there, and you can find those there. They are available. So it's not just Mark 14 today. We're going to talk about the deliverer who dies. I've got a lot to read. I encourage you to stay with me, follow along, listen as we read through this, uh, because this one had to be shocking. When the Messiah came and he laid down to sleep, that had to be shocking, but not as shocking as when he died. And I'll tell you, his posture was he laid down again like he did when he came, but he laid down differently. This time, Jesus willingly laid down his life to die for us. The posture he chose was humility. Can I remind you, nails can't hold a God to a tree. The only reason why he went to that tree and stayed on that tree is because he chose to, out of love for you and me. He chose to lay down. His posture was humility and sacrifice. And so I want to read through you uh, most of the passage about what happened. Can I do that and we'll just walk through this? I know it's mostly a Good Friday thing, but I wanted you thinking about it. Today's Palm Sunday. Instead of preaching a Palm Sunday message, I want to preach the cross and Jesus crucified today. So you're thinking about it this entire week as we head to Good Friday. And then next week, I mean, you can't, I'm like a prize box fighter ready to come out fighting. That's why the, 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 the uh, tomb over here, I just couldn't close it all the way. See the little light peeking through? I know I'm cheating. I know I'm cheating. But we always preach the cross and Jesus' death with a resurrection in mind, amen? So the light's breaking through because something good's coming next Sunday. Make sure you're here for that. Let me read, starting in Mark 14. You follow along. We're going to start in verse 43. Mark 14, 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer has arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas kissed or said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, I love this. We all laugh at this. Um, These are not trained soldiers. Jesus had a band of 12. One of them actually turned him in. So he's got 11. uh, And there's a a really short stand of attack, you know. And and, uh, one of them whips out a sword. And he's a, you know, we're talking about fishermen here. And so they're not really adapted at things. And he accidentally cuts off an ear of a soldier. It was dangerous. That was pretty scary. You know, it's pretty close. Uh, Mark doesn't fill in the rest of the details. If you want to hear the whole story of this whole week, you need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John leaves out all sorts of information. 
information, but it's because he had the writings in front of him of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he filled in details that weren't there. And so with the synoptic of the Gospels, the seeing together is what synoptic means. Or if you have a harmony of the Gospels, read all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to get a full picture. In one of the other Gospels we read, I love that Jesus rebukes the disciples for whipping out a sword, but he does so while he's picking up an ear and putting it back on. I just love that. I love that part of the story. What, what was the guy thinking? I mean, he's screaming his head off because his ear had been chopped off, and then all of a sudden it's healed? What were they thinking when that happened? They had to be thinking, wait a second, this, this isn't a normal guy that we arrest. They had to be thinking that. Then it moves on. Jesus said to the soldier, he says, am I leading a rebellion? said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. I love this next two verses. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, you can laugh. I just love things like that. I, I do. Oh, yes, that call in the street. Right? I mean, and I love that the Bible, the one thing I will say about Scripture, our Scriptures, God's holy word, the reason that it strikes you as truth is because no other religious book gives you the bad details. And typically when a writer is saying things like this, he's talking about himself without using his name. There was a young man there. It's like... Here was one of the lowest moments of my life. I ran away naked. (laughs) I fled. But they all fled. They all left. And it goes on then to say, they took Jesus, verse 53, to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. He sat there with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another one not made with hands. Yet even then their testimonies did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, here's why lawyers say don't talk. (laughs) Jesus hadn't said anything, but when he did, when he spoke, he wasn't trying to get off the charges. He was there to die. These things had to be accomplished for our salvation. So all that Jesus says in his own defense is, you said it. You said it. And then he moves on from there. Verse 63, the high priest tore, tore his clothes. Why, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. 
Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. They said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when, they, Peter, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know what, or understand what you're talking about, he said. He went out in the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those around, this one is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses. He swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Peter remembered the words Jesus spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, she would disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Now we're in Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, handed him to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison and with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. They called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simeon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. It is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves he saved others they said but he can't save himself let this messiah the king of israel come down now from the cross that he may see that we may see and believe those crucified 
with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until at three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listening, he, he, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Let's pray. Would you pray this with me? You don't have to say anything out loud, but would you say, God, since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. Can you give that prayer to God? God, since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. And God, I pray that you'd be glorified, that anyone hearing this message would be edified. I pray that Satan would be horrified in Jesus' name. Amen. We took a long time to read through the context. I'd encourage you to read through it again through all the Gospels this entire week to prepare yourself for Friday and then Sunday. There's a couple of things I just want to walk through with you this morning. And, and kind of following the way we've been preaching this whole series, we're going to talk about why did Jesus die. Remember, we talked about why did Jesus sleep? Why did he rest in the bow of a boat? And why did he kneel to serve his friends? Well, you need to know why he died. And I want to make it very clear today. Jesus died for a great need. I'd encourage you to take notes, by the way. Uh, we always put out notes. There are notes you could take on the app. Our church has an app. You can follow along there. But he died because we have a great need. Number one, uh, I am powerless. I put this in first person uh, because maybe you don't want to feel judged today and you'd rather me talk about how bad I am. But if you're taking notes, you're talking about you, <laughs> and it's your need. It's our need. So I am powerless. Everybody say powerless. Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Leave that there because we're going to stay right in Romans in the next couple of verses. I'm powerless, you know, that word there, I looked it up to see exactly what it meant. And it means without strength, weak, or sick. You and I need to be reminded that we have no power to fix our need. Everyone's born with a sin problem, and that's a great need, and we can't fix it. Have you ever been sick? Have you ever been wounded, and you can't fix it? I know somebody like that. <laughs> Have you ever been in pain, and they can't? Fix it. And you, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you need to know spiritually, you and I have a great need, and we are weak, have no effort on our own to, to fix our situation. What's our situation? We're ungodly. In Romans 5, 6 said that the, we're powerless, we're ungodly. But in Romans chapter, or verse 5, verse, chapter, verse 7 on chapter 5, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. In the book of Romans, we're, we're, we're taught that we're powerless to fix our own situation, and our situation is that we're not righteous. The word ungodly there, it means without reverence or worship. I'm not saying you're a horrible person, but on our own, we don't tend to worship God. In order to worship God, you need to stop worshiping the one that you put on the throne most often, yourself. And the Bible says 
The problem with this world is, is that we're all born with a sin problem and we act on it. And the number one thing we struggle with is pride and selfishness. So when it says you're ungodly, it simply means you do not worship the one who truly is righteous and godly, God himself. The third thing is there that my great need is I am sinful. And we're following Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. In verse 8 it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sin. What does it mean? I don't want to spend all the time on a small point, but sin, the word sin, sign, was used in archery, which means to miss the mark. When you shot an arrow and you miss the target, uh, sign, it's almost like a golfer saying, four, you're watching the Masters this week, I love it, I love watching, and I just love it when golfers make mistakes because there's hope for me. I mean, every once in a while, out of 82 golfers, you know, out of a thousand strokes, one golfer will hit the ball into the crowd, I'm like, yes! exactly where my ball would go i watch the masters and there are people lined up all the way and i mean if i'm golfing don't stand anywhere out there i mean anywhere out there but don't line the fairway because if my ball hits the fairway it's an amazing thing so i hit the ball and i yell four when they're shooting arrows and they're trying to hit the target sign sin is to miss the mark it means to violate to violate God's perfection. It's failure. I hate to use that word, but it's just simply failure. We fail to be perfect. We fail to be 100% righteous on our own. We have a great need, friends. I'm powerless. I'm ungodly. I'm sinful. And lastly, I am God's enemy. As harsh as that sounds, Romans continues. Since we now, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, Jesus? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been, I need help with that, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Friends, it's not me accusing you of this. The Bible lets us know that I'm powerless to fix it. I'm ungodly. I tend to worship myself. And I'm sinful. I miss the mark. And I'm God's enemy. That means, it honestly means I'm in rebellion. And I refuse to follow God. Therefore, I'm an enemy of God. I'm against God of my choosing. You might think, uh, you might blame this on God. Why is God against me? No, no, no. No, no, no. We're against God in our sinfulness. It's about our hostility towards Him and God's hostility toward our sinfulness, not us. You need to hear that today and understand that. What we're talking about is the great need. It's a good thing God's not against us. He's for us. Everybody say for us. And He's with us. Everybody say with us. That's the message of Christmas, why Jesus came. But He is against your sinfulness. He's He's downright hostile toward our sinfulness. Sin will be paid for. That's what we learn. Why did Jesus die? Because of the great need. Why else did Jesus die? He died for a great plan. God's passion. I need to remind you of God's love for us in Jeremiah. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. Everybody say everlasting. Everybody say unfailing. We need to understand that about God. His love is not normal. It's a passion for us. 
He's with us. He's for us. It's an unfailing love. It's an un, undying love. And that's so different than the world's version of love today. The, ver- the world's version of love is, I love you until I don't love you. <laughs> I love you until that changes. <laughs> I love that until you annoy me and then I'm going to change. And, and that's not God. Our God is not like that. Our God does not love like we tend to love. He loves us with an unending love, an everlasting love, an an undying love, an unfailing love. That's our God. It's his passion. Jesus died for the great plan. Why? Because it's God's provision. John 3, 16. You know what I'm going to say. For God so loved. I I love it when Oakwood gets that right. We don't just say so loved. We were right past that small little word, but it's two letters long and it's huge. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's provision. That's how much God loves you today. We're talking about Jesus going to the cross and laying down. His posture is to offer himself freely. He didn't offer defense. He didn't try to get out of it. He went through all of it. When he was offered drugs to numb the pain, he refused them. That just blows my mind. That blows my mind. I spent the last two weeks crawling on the ground begging for anything. If I couldn't find anything, find a hammer. I'm just, I'm telling you, pain is an awful thing. It's an awful thing. But our Jesus went through it all willingly and didn't even take the offer to numb some of the pain. Didn't even take it. That's, that's God's passion, God's provision. And it's, it's a great plan that Jesus died for. It's God's promise. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 tells us this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That, that atoning sacrifice means that when Jesus died on the cross, it was sufficient to pay for our sinfulness. It's called propitiation. It met the need. His blood on the cross, his shed blood and his death was the propitiation of our sin. God found it to be worthy. It's amazing as you look through this story, you see bits and pieces. Jesus didn't die within the walls of Jerusalem. They led him out. Three small words, led him out. Why? Because we know that the Passover lamb that was sacrificed was taken outside the camp. Never inside the camp. Jesus fulfilled every prophecy down to the fact that they dragged him outside to crucify him. His blood was shed like the Passover lamb's blood was shed. That's God's passion. That's God's provision. That's God's promise. There's life in Jesus. Why else did Jesus die? He died for a great future. I'm not going to shy away from this. Uh, There's a, a great place. There's a new place. He's making all things new. Oh, friends, Jesus died for a much better future than the one we're having here. Have you been discouraged that things seem to be getting worse? You ought to have been reading the book. It kind of tells us it's heading that way. Buck up, believer, because it's not all of a sudden going to get better. This world's spiraled downward. And God's holding back. Jesus is holding back. The full effect of sin until the tribulation times and he comes back and he gets us as his own and then it will be released. We don't even know how bad it can get. You might think every day this is as bad as it can get. Oh no. Oh no. 
There is a new place. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 talks about it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. Everybody say with. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, everybody say with. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, I'm glad he wrote them down because I need to know he's going to fix this. He's going to make this new. Anybody else get excited about that? We have a, a hope. See, Jesus died not only for a great need, not only, not only for a great plan, he died for a great future, a new place, and then there's a new palace. John 14, one through six teaches us, don't let your hearts be troubled, Amen. We've got to read these things to ourselves every day. <laughs> don't we got to wake up and remind ourselves? Scripture says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Aren't you glad to know that there's a new place and there's a new palace? Again, don't get your theology mixed up. Everybody thinks I'm going to heaven and I'm going to get my own mansion. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Those are the songs we used to sing. And everybody's thinking, oh, I hope my mansion's bigger than his. I hope Jim doesn't get a bigger mansion than mine. I'm going to have And then there's a great Christian song not too long ago. says, keep doing good deeds because it's like sending lumber to heaven, building your... I'm like, no. You can knock it off, you bunch of selfish, prideful people, as if we're going to get there. No, 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 no. The Bible makes it clear. We're going to the Father's house. You don't need a house of your own. We're going to go live with God. It's his palace. I get a room. I'm, I'm, man, put me, in the, put, me in the, put me in the outhouse. I don't care. Get me close. I just want to be there. And don't be thinking you're going to have your own mansion that's going to be bigger than anybody else's and you can build a bigger one than somebody, but no, 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 knock it off. There's a new place and it's a new palace and it's God's home and a new prize. 1 John 5, 4 through 5, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory, everybody say victory, that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What's the new prize? We need to be thinking in terms of this, friends. We don't need to be thinking in terms of my mansion's bigger than your mansion, and we don't need to be thinking selfishly. The prize is we overcome. The prize is we have victory instead of defeat. That word is nikao in the Greek. Nikao, which means victory. By the word, it's the same as some of you got on your shoes right now. If you're wearing Nike, the word Nike, N-I-K-E, is a Greek word that simply means 
victory. It's always driven me nuts that Nike has never promoted that in their commercials. They have a great name. Their name means victory. Their name means, put my shoes on, you'll win. That's what their name means, and it's a biblical word. And it tells us we are nikao. As believers, you get to Nike. We get to overcome all of the stuff here, and we get a new place, a new palace, and the prize is victory. Anybody want to win? I mean, I... I want to know that I'm going to win in the end. I want to know that there's going to be an overcoming situation here. That's why Jesus did this. All these things. A promise of life through him. So there's lessons. We end today. There's lessons from the cross. Lessons from the deliverer who dies. And that is that this cross is a place of death. As you leave today, you need to understand there's no getting around it. This cross is a place of death. It's amazing to me that the cross has become a very popular jewelry item and tattoo, and it's all over the place. I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing the cross, and it's actually uh, a form of death. I don't see many people wearing guillotines around their necks, or that's, that's ironic, a guillotine and neck, anyways. You don't see many guillotine, I don't see many guillotine tattoos because the guillotine's awful. The guillotine is somebody's losing their head. And we don't celebrate that. And yet I understand. I understand. I think there ought to be more tombs open than there ought to be crosses. I mean, if you as a Christian want to, want to show something that means victory, it is that. It is, it is next Sunday. But the cross is important. We don't get a resurrection unless we have a Savior who went all the way. We need to be reminded that the cross is a place of death. Jesus went through the agony of pain. I, I put that in there because I remind myself, pain is an awful thing. We have people here that have experienced pain, and it's not fun. Jesus went through the agony of the cross. You know, the crucifixion actually was invented by the Persians. It was picked up by the Carthaginians. It was passed down to the Romans. And Rome never used it for a Roman citizen. They, they saved it for the worst punishment, and it was reserved to keep foreign criminals in line. Slaves and criminals. And Rome perfected it. I mean, the Persians might have invented it, and the Carthaginians might have passed it on, but Rome perfected it. And Jesus went through all the pain associated with it. I shudder and shiver when I think of that text that talks about Jesus being handed over the soldiers who took him in a private place and did what they wanted to with him. I can't even imagine that. Trained killers. <laughs> Trained torturers. And the Bible says they beat him. I can't imagine much worse than being handed over to a barbaric, savage crowd. And nobody there was under control. I mean, and Jesus went through that. That pain, the physical pain, I don't want to keep going on about that, but the physical pain of the cross was agony. But it's also the agony of sin. I, I say this all the time. I believe the greatest agony on the cross was beyond physical pain. It was the moment he became your sin and my sin. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he cried. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment he became sin for us, God turned his back on his son. And Jesus had never experienced that. 
He had never experienced no fellowship with the Father. And at that moment, he was going through a pain he never imagined. The agony of pain, the agony of sin, and the agony of betrayal. We know that the Bible makes it very clear what Peter did. That hurt. That had to hurt Jesus. Betrayal hurts. Have you ever had a close friend? Somebody close to you? Because betrayal isn't much if it's not from a close friend. If it's just somebody who knows you and they betray, a big deal. But it hurts when it's close. I'm so thankful that Jesus reinstated Peter. I've been there on the shore where Jesus reinstated Peter. I love that. I lingered there. Peter needed that. Because he had, he had let him down. And it had to hurt. Jesus knew it was coming. Like he knew what, what Judas was about to do. But the, the betrayal of Peter had to hurt. The betrayal and the agony of desertion. When they all fled. One guy's running away naked. Getting mooned by him as he goes. And Jesus had to feel the pain of that moment brings us to the agony of loneliness. I mean, he was, there's that one moment on the cross where he's our sin and even God turns his back. He is all alone. The cross is a place of death and we need to remember that. Secondly, the cross is a place of division. I think of Nicodemus Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders. We remember him, and I love it how preachers, we all get on stage, we talk about, oh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, in the dark. Oh, bad Nicodemus, he's trying to, he's trying to hide so he doesn't get caught. Can I remind you that Nicodemus, in broad daylight, was there, took Jesus down off the cross, and he helped Joseph of Arimathea prepare him for burial. Nicodemus wasn't always hiding, friends. He was there to the end. And it separated him from the other religious leaders. Like the centurion. I read to you the day of how they were, the soldiers were all looking down and gambling for his clothing. But only the centurion looked up when the sky got dark and the earth shook and stones began to break. And it was the centurion who was separated from the rest of the soldiers when he said, surely this was the Son of God. See, the cross separates people. It'll divide you. Maybe your family is divided. Is this true or not? The cross is a place of death, and it can also be a place of division. Nicodemus, the centurion, what about the thief? The thief was separated from the other thief on the cross. I love this. Go ahead. At the beginning, he was outside Christ that morning, and then by noon, he was in Christ, and by the end of the day, he was in paradise. Don't you love that story? It's never too late. I wouldn't wait, but it's never too late. And I love the story of the thief on the cross more than anything because it tells us that everybody, anybody can come to faith. It's never too late. And I love, I love how Alistair Begg tells the story of the, th- the thieves on the cross because I can't imagine that as, as Jesus died and breathed his last, I don't know if it wasn't too much longer, that the thief died on the cross. And immediately upon his death, he shows up at heaven and he's at the gates. And the guy in charge that day had to say, How did you get here? And the thief had to go, I have no idea. Well, 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 why are you here? Listen, I I got no idea. Well, what did you do to, how long were you in the church? Did you grow up in the church? I've never been to church in my life. How did you get here? I have no idea. 
Well, you must have given some money. You might, I've never given a dime. I need to call my supervisor. <laughs> Peter comes to the gate. Excuse me, sir. Um, we need to know, like, how, how did you get here? And the guy's like, listen, all I know is the guy on the middle cross said that I could come. That's it. That's it. He didn't do anything. He wasn't baptized. He wasn't anything. In the, in the beginning of the day, he's cursing Christ from the cross. By noon, he accepts Christ on the cross. And at night, he's up in paradise. I love that. The cross is a place of death. The cross is a place of division. The cross is a place of decision. So friends, I'll end my message today, and it's very clear. You've got to make a choice. Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? He claimed to be the Son of God when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Have you decided to put your faith in him? If not, man, again, you might be looking for all the, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? Ask the thief on the other cross. It doesn't take much. Just put your faith in him. Put your faith in him today. It's a place of decision, and it's also a place of devotion. If you are a believer today, I want to remind us this week is an important week. And the cross should remind us of how much we love him. Not that we loved him first. He loved us first. But it should remind us to be devoted to him. Amen? That's the story of the cross. People have written about it. There's a down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied. Sing it. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to the cross was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Thank you, former Baptist who knows hymns. The hymn writer wrote that, Elisha, 1870, Elisha probably, 1878. We've been singing songs about the cross ever since. And then this quote is good. I'll close with this. Bring your team on up, Tracy. Let's, let's, let's worship our way out today. Charles Spurgeon says, Morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus Christ to keep you out of hell. I pray today that you know him. My prayer is that you don't just know about him, but you know him. My prayer goes beyond that. I pray that you've taken that to a whole new level so that Christ knows you. Don't forget, when Matthew 7 rolls around, we find out that there's a day coming when you'll stand before a holy God who wants to know who's paying for the sin. And when he says, welcome into my eternal rest to you and me who have put our faith in him, that's a beautiful thing. But the most awful words ever heard by anybody ever are going to be the words that Jesus says. Depart from me. I never knew you. This morning, I'm not asking you, do you know this story? Maybe you've heard it your whole life. I'm not asking you if you know about God. I'm not asking if you know about church. You can know all these things and miss it. I'm asking, does he know you? Because if this story has entered your heart and you've entered into a a faith relationship by Christ, it changes everything. Because now you're known by God. Remember, I was once an enemy, but now I'm seated at the table. Is that your story? Is that your story today? Let's pray. As you're getting ready to pray, 
I'd ask you right now, right where you're at, if you have never accepted his love, you can do it from where you're at. You can have a conversation with him. You can make it clear that you know you're, you're in sin. You know there's a great need, but you can also say, I've put my faith and trust in you. You can also ask him to come into your life as your Savior and Lord. You can do these things today and know, and know. Uh, why did Jesus die? He died because he loves us. He went through it all for us. What's the lesson we learn? Well, the cross is a place of division, but it's a place of decision. It's a place of devotion. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Pray that everyone in this room, everyone hearing this message, whether at home or another place, God, I pray that we would all be put to that place of choice. And God, if this is the time, the first time that somebody has heard this and thought about it, I pray they'd receive you today. That all of this was not in vain. That you changed. That you're coming again. We know that's true. But Father, I pray it'd be true in the hearts and lives of every individual today. In Jesus' name, amen.